Sasha Tavadashi, Idor Pajalavat Saad Power. I'm Roberto. And I'm Brendan, and together we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. This week, Izyaslav, the first. Yes, he is the first of his name. And before we jump into today's episode, we want to let you know about the history of Persia. We didn't do a promo for them again? Already? No, that's so you think you can rule Persia. Oh. Uh, this is Trevor's podcast. Wait, how did we not do a promo for him yet? I feel like that's a massive oversight. We're doing it now. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. This is the best podcast to get an in-depth look at Persian history, which is a time period most people know nothing about. I highly recommend Trevor's show, and he has been a friend of the show since we both started podcasting. You might have heard Trevor's voice on a discussion uh, explaining Zoroastrianism for the history of Sakhart Villa, Georgia. Absolutely. Trevor is very knowledgeable on the subject, and we adore him in this two podcasts we run. Now, here's his trailer. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor Cully, host of the History of Persia podcast. From about 550 to 330 BC, most of the Middle East was ruled by the Achaemenid Persians. The Achaemenids pioneered the concept of a truly multinational empire that incorporated people from as far away as India and Greece under the banner of one empire for over 200 years. The story of Persia discusses the fall of ancient civilizations, the origins of endurance racing, 300 Spartans, the March of the 10,000, and at least one evil priest who replaced and impersonated the king. All before the Achaemenids came to a dramatic close with the story of being on the losing end of Alexander the Great's conquests. If that story and the cultures that surround it sound interesting to you, check out the History of Persia at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, like this one. I've really enjoyed listening to Trevor's podcast, and he's just an amazing person. Make sure to check them out. So, uh, Brendan, it's happening. The thing I've been avoiding for as long as I could. Um, what were you avoiding? So the thing I've been avoiding is... Relationship commitment? What? Oh, man, don't put me on the spot. No, 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 no. <laughs> the thing I've been avoiding as long as possible is adding patronymic names into the show. Ah, do you know what a patronymic name is? Uh, yeah, but explain it for the audience anyway. Okay, Brendan has a face of confusion right now for those who can't see the camera. No, I don't. Okay, so a patronymic name... Well, before I get into that, I've been trying to avoid bringing patronymic names as long as possible because it just makes saying people's names way too long. But we've reached a point where people have too many similar names, and we need to start recognizing people based off of who their fathers were. So a patronymic name, as most people would see in the Western world, it would be like a middle name. But it actually means you're the son of this person. So for example, Yaroslav the Wise, who we covered in the last episode, would be known formally to people, so people would actually refer to him as Yaroslav Vladimirovich. So Yaroslav, son of Vladimir. And then his sister, Dobroniega, would be Dobroniega Vladimirovna. So you can recognize... A patronymic name when you see an Ovich or Evich for men, and an Ovna Evna for women. And welcome to the mess of Russian naming conventions. Now, when it comes to the ruler we will be covering, I will not use their patronymic unless it's absolutely necessary. Or if they have an epithet, I will refer to that epithet in future episodes if it's not their episodes. So for names such as Vladimir Monomach, you would recognize him as... Vladimir Vsevolodovich, but because he has an epithet, I will first mention him as Vladimir Vsevolodovich Monomach, and then so from then on say Vladimir Monomach because he has that epithet. Just for examples. Um, I hope this clears up any confusion, Brendan. Um, no confusion, because I, I know how Russian patronymics work. Okay, well, if it gets too confusing about who's who, please feel free to stop me and let me know. Okay. Okay. And also, just another quick thing. When it comes to calling generational groups of people, such as the ones we're about to cover, I'm going to be calling them the father's name plus Ichi. So the sons of Yaroslav would be called the Yaroslavichi, and the sons of Sviatoslav, the Sviatoslavichi, and so on and so forth. This is just so you know which generation we're working with. And we're not going to go any further than like two generations in, so it's not going to get that confusing. And I've really tried to a lot to make sure that we can keep the names straight. Alrighty, mm. that went on longer than I thought it would. 
Uh, that's one thing you don't want to be in Russia right now. Not straight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's so true. <laughs> Alrighty. Do you want to recap the episode for us? Or the last episode? Uh, yeah. So, uh, there's this guy. His name was Yaroslav. Yaroslav was the son of Vladimir the Great. Uh, Vladimir the Great had a lot of kids. A lot of sons, specifically. Which means Yaroslav had a lot of brothers. Which means... There are a lot of people who had legitimate claims to the throne who all really wanted them. Um, some shenanigans happened. Uh, his brother, a lot of his brothers ended up dead. Um, in particular, Sviatoslav, who was a pain in his backside. Um, but uh, then he just ended up dying of disease. Mr. Slav. Yeah. Yeah. And then Mrs. Slav was also a pain in his backside. He controlled half of like the entire kingdom. Uh, but then he died. Which meant he inherited the entirety of the Rus territory. Which means he united the Rus under one person for, well, not the first time. But the first time in a long time. Um, especially given how much conflict there was in uh, the previous centuries. And he did a lot of, uh, let's say, historically pivotal things. He actually wrote the laws down, you know, on a piece of paper with letters he built a lot of churches he established a strong relationship with uh the orthodox russian church um which had also just schismed at this point with at uh, his death yeah um he introduced um places of higher learning and read a lot of books nerd 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 had a little spat with the uh byzantines for a bit um, because they killed a bunch of uh, Rus and refused to do anything about the perpetrators. And then uh, he died. Um, he had lost his wife. He had lost his beloved oldest son, his right-hand man, also named Vladimir. This would make him Vladimir Yaroslavovich. And uh, I guess he had an heir of some kind. Yeah, who's that heir? Uh, that would be this guy. <laughs> it would be Izyaslav. Izyaslav. Because... What is one thing that Yaroslav actually did that all the other rulers hadn't? Um, make sure they had a solid heir. And a succession plan. It is time. That was actually a really good recap, Brendan. It's like, you remembered a lot. Um, yeah, because just, we just tap recorded it. Well, true. <laughs> that really does help, doesn't it? Not a month in between, but like an hour at most. <laughs> so... It is time to go into the etymology of what Izyaslav means. Well, I know Slav means glory. So, Slav does mean glory. And the first part of his name comes from the Ukrainian word. Well, it says Ukrainian, but I'm just going to go with like Old Slavic. Mm. Izyati. So, it comes from Izyati, which means like take. Um, so, like in Russian, would be like, Zyat would be also to take. Mm-hmm. So... Iziati take plus Slava meaning glory. It is it basically means one who takes the glory. Before we start with Iziaslav's life, have you seen the community before? Community, the show? Yeah, of Donald Glover. Uh no, never saw it. Have you seen the meme where he walks in with pizza and everything mm-hmm. is on fire? Yeah. Imagine that for a while. <laughs> okay. Okay. So early life. Iziaslav was born to Grand Prince Yaroslav the Wise and Princess Ingegard. On the 5th of February, 1024. Finally, someone whose parentage isn't disputed. Mm-hmm. Anyways. It could be helped if they actually named the woman who is the uh, mother. But, you know. Well, Rekunieta had a name, but, you know, Vladimir also had like 800 wives, so it's... Yeah. You could also try to keep it in your pants for half a second. It might help. Which Yaroslav did, but he still had 10 kids. <laughs> yeah. 10 kids by one woman. Which is, makes it a lot easier for us. Mm-hmm. But again, please pour one out for that poor woman. <laughs> Ten kids. Yeah, my God. God. She was a great Orthodox wife, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, ideal Orthodox wife. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, he doesn't show up often in the Chronicles during his early life due to his elder brother Vladimir being the one who was the heir to the Kievan throne. Around 1043, Prince Yaroslav made a deal with King Casimir I of Poland that finally recognized the region of Cherven as belonging to Kiev, and with it, Dobroniega, Yaroslav's sister, was married to Casimir, while Izyaslav was married to Gertruda, 
Casimir's sister. So a bit of a more of a two years pass. And then in 1045, he was made the Prince of Turov. And in 1050, his son Sviatopolk was born. This is Sviatopolk Izyaslavovich. Not the other, not the other Sviatopolk. No, the other Sviatopolk is Sviatopolk the Accursed, mm-hmm. as we will call him. This is Sviatopolk Izyaslavich. Um, we do not have the dates of birth for his other sons, Yaropolk and Mrsislav at all. So either, these are both Izyaslavich. Um, I will make sure that that's noted every time, most of the time, unless I say son of Izyaslav. And then, as we know, in 1054, Yaroslav finally passed away, bequeathing the throne of Kiev to Izyaslav. Good for him. And he ascended to the throne as Yaroslav had dictated. His brothers did not argue. But instead of sole authority entering the hands of Izyaslav, Kievan Rus was divided into a triumvirate between Izyaslav, Sviatoslav, and Sievolod. God's sake. How many times are these people going to divide the power between the sons of a guy and not realize that this just creates conflict? Well, you're right. And, well, these are the three other sons of Yaroslav who we're going to call the Yaroslavichi when they do stuff together. Uh, who is who is Vladimir's Vladimir the Great's father's um also Sviatoslav. Vladimir the Great's father is also Sviatoslav. Yeah, yeah right. Sviatoslav. Sviatoslav did the exact same thing. He he divided the kingdom between Vladimir the Great, between Gliab, um the other guy Yaropolk, I think. Yaropolk Alieg and yeah, Vladimir. Yeah. Vladimir and it literally, all it did was sow conflict. Well, Sviatoslav didn't have a, a chance because he was killed in battle. That, huh. But, okay, that doesn't matter. He died in his death. It goes to, like, say what you want about the unfairness of primogeniture system. It did not divide power. And it did not create a bunch of wars. You're right. I, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. <clears throat> I'm just saying what happened. I'm a, you know, if, if monarchy, I'm a big fan of primogenitor because it makes sh- sh- sure that everyone doesn't inherit everything and one person has sole authority because it makes it easier to transfer things. Now, yeah, it's a simpler system. And it, it is. The oldest gets it. I right, think I'm, you, yeah, I think I'm starting to get why it was so popular. Yeah. Well, power was divided amongst the three of them and Kiev was still the predominant power as the built up capital. Uh, Sviatoslav gained Chernigov, and Sievolod gained Periaslavl. And, to make matters better, to just kind of showcase that they are kind of on equal terms, they were granted their own bishops in their cities, and these bishops were given the ti- the use of the title of Metropolitan, but not the power associated with it. So they could say, yes, I'm the Metropolitan of Chernigov or Periaslavl, but they wouldn't be surpassing the Metropolitan of Kiev in power at all. Well, and of course, there were two other brothers. You had Vyacheslav and Igor, who took Smolensk and Vladimir respectively. But they're not important to the narrative because they both passed away rather early into the reign of Izyaslav. So goodbye, Vyacheslav, and goodbye, Igor. Except Vyacheslav will make an appearance soonish, or his descendants will. So I'll keep that in mind. And needing to confirm his strength as the Grand Prince of Kiev, Izyaslav went north and conquered the Galindians a Baltic tribe, and annexed them into the Kievan Rus territory. This is great for his troops' morale, and to increase his piety, he, along with his brothers, found that key that Yaroslav tossed away all those years ago, and liberated their uncle Sudislav Vladimirovich from his prison cell, where he had been confined over the last 24 years by Yaroslav the Wise. They obtained his oath of fealty, which he made by by kissing the cross, and then he was pushed into the monastic life, to live out to the end of his days. So there's uncle. You have a monk uncle now. Uh, it's a good way to uh, take care of potential challengers to the throne. Yeah, it is. However, things were starting to get a bit chaotic within the realm. News arrived from the east that the Pechnegs have been subjugated by a new tribe that the Rus called the Polovsi, or the Straw-Haired. This worried the Yaroslavici, who then, together, embarked on an expedition east by boat and on horseback to meet this incoming threat. We know the Polovsi as the Cumans, and this expedition was a success, sending the Cumans back over the River Alta. 
So this is like a Turkic tribe that's coming in. They're, they're pretty predominant in like history later on. So that's why I was asking what name is the most recognizable earlier. Yeah. And you probably should have put an option for none of the above. I've never heard of these because... I don't believe in Noda. <laughs> All right, then. Well, I do, but like it was mostly for the people who knew. Back in the north, by the Baltic Sea, things were heating up. As the saying goes, when the cat's away, the mice come out and play. This time, the cats were the Yaroslavichi, and the mouse was Sieslav Brakislavich of Polotsk, the prince of Polotsk. Sieslav Brakislavich of Polotsk was the son of Brakislav, whom Yaroslav subjugated back early in his reign. You know that gadfly you were talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is his son, who's now in charge. Sieslav was the grandson of Vladimir the Great through his son, Izyaslav Vladimirovich, who predeceased his father and was taken out of the succession cycle for the throne of Kiev. The Polotskian prince took advantage of the Yaroslavichi being busy with their expedition and went on to attack Novgorod, where he took it by storm and captured a great deal of treasure from under the nose of Mstislav Izyaslavich, the son of the Grand Prince. Izyaslav would not stand for this and, along with his brothers, gathered their army and marched northwards to fight against Sieslav of Polotsk and get revenge. This was outside the norm because they went north in the middle of winter, and the snow was beginning to heavily cover the Rus countryside. However, this did not impede the Yaroslavichi, and they arrived at the town of Minsk. Ever heard of that one? Yeah, I've heard of Minsk. Yeah, pretty uh, big city nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, the denizens were terrified of the Yaroslavichi being at their door and proceeded to barricade themselves within the city. Because you have three princes about to break down your city. Would you not be afraid? I mean, yeah. That's kind of the move in medieval times. If you're under attack, put up the walls, lock the gates, and uh, oh, yeah. hope they go away before you run out of food. Well, this did not change their fates. As the palisades were stormed and broken... The city was captured, and the men were put to the sword, while the women and children were sold into slavery. Yep, sounds about right for uh, the Slavs. Of course, Sieslav of Polotsk was in another castle, and the Yaroslavichi continued north to meet with their rebellious cousin. Their armies met at the Nemiza River, and the snow was now blanketing the ground around them. This had not stopped them, and their battle began. Blood sprayed along the snow, limbs flew around, and the carnage was great. By the end of the battle, it was a red slush coating the ground, and the Yaroslavichi were victorious. This led the chronicler to say, The bloody banks of the Nyebiga are not sown with blessings. They are sown with the bones of the sons of the Rus. The battle may have been won, but Sieslav had miraculously somehow disappeared from the battlefield, without a trace. The Yaroslavichi came to their camp near Smolensk and sent Sieslav of Polotsk a message. They took an oath promising peace and safety to their cousin, and he'd have safe conduct in coming to their camp. No harm would come to him, and they promised on the cross and kissed it. Sieslav, being a very pious man himself, agreed and came to the Yaroslavichi camp near Smolensk and entered their tent, where he and his sons were immediately arrested, taken to Kiev, and tossed into a cell. Again, very efficient way of dealing with uh, people who make trouble for you, so to speak. Yeah. Very true. But the chroniclers were rather upset at the Yaroslavichi for breaking their promise in God's name and cursed them rather furiously for doing so. Because, you know, they kissed the cross and... Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't do something and then they did it. Yep. And lo and behold, this curse came to be because divine punishment arrived to the Yaroslavichi. In 1068, news of the turmoil between the cousins reached the Cuman ears and they rode hard and in force to attack the Rus lands. The Yaroslavichi fresh from the battle against the Bolotskians, rode to the Alta River, the border of the Steplands, and met the Cubans in battle in the dead of night. The battle was hard, and the Rus were heavily defeated, and sent retreating back to their cities. The chroniclers, while upset at what happened, said that this is the punishment for breaking an oath. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, of course. Mm -hmm. Izyaslav made his way back to Kiev with Sievolod, since Periaslavl was within range of the Cuban raiders, while Sviatoslav made his way back to Chernigov. At the return of their defeated prince, the Kievans grew into a frenzy. They met in the market and made pleas to Izyaslav to arm and prepare them for the upcoming fight against the Cumans. Their words fell on deaf ears, and they grew even more upset. The Kievans formed the mob and searched for Izyaslav's general, Constantine, 
so that he could lead their defense, but Constantine was unable to be found. It was at this point that they decided that they needed more people for the defense of Kiev and split into two groups. One group would go to the palace and the other group would go to the prison to release their friends. The group who went to the palace entered the courtyard by force and started threatening Izyaslav, promising that they would release Vsyaslav and make him the prince of Kiev if he did nothing to help them. One of Izyaslav's retainers, Tuki by name, looked out of the window and alerted the grand prince to the situation. He advised Izyaslav to send guards to the prison to kill Vsyaslav, just in case they held true to their promise, but Izyaslav proceeded to ignore him. The group that went to the prison broke through the defenses and they released everyone held within, including Vsyaslav, who they carried back to Stadokievskaya Hill, where the palace is located. With Vsyaslav now in their hands, the mob grew frenzied and they stormed the palace. Izyaslav and Vsyavolod were forced to flee from the palace, with Izyaslav heading to Poland and Vsyavolod back to Pereyaslavl. Vsyaslav was made the Grand Prince by mob rule, and the mob ruled to steal all of Izyaslav's treasure. I got a smile out of Brendan. <laughs> I think that's the first time that's happened in this show. Um, appointment to <laughs> Prince Hood of, no- what is it, Novgorod or Kiev? Kiev. Yeah. Appointment to Princedom of Kiev via mob rule. I think that's a first for this show. It is. It really is. Well, we're going to continue on with Izyaslav's life because he's not done just yet. Mm-hmm. So he's in Poland now, flanked by his Polish wife, Gertruda. And he met his nephew-in-law, King Boleslav II. With a promise of gold, he was given reinforcements that would of course be led by Boleslav to help him retake the city from the unruly Kievans and his blasted cousin, Sieslav of Polotsk. Hearing word that Izyaslav was making his way to Kiev, Sieslav marched the army out from Kiev and made their way to meet the Polish army at Bielgorod. They both made camp outside the city, but in the cover of the night, Vsyevolo disappeared without a trace and made his way back to Polotsk. There's tales of hearing a wolf's cry in the background. So. The Kievan army found out the next morning and retreated back to Kiev. A few days of waiting for the Polish troops to recover from their march, Izyaslav received a letter from his brothers, Vsyevolod and Sviatoslav. They warned him to not exact revenge and burn the city to the ground because they did not want the main city of Rus to be a smoldering heap. Which, you know, is a good reason. Izyaslav mm-hmm. partially agreed and sent his son, Mstislav, formerly the Prince of Novgorod, ahead of him. During this time of Izyaslav being ousted of Kiev, Mstislav was ousted of Novgorod by Vsyaslav, and in that absence, his uncle Sviatoslav took back the city and placed his son Gleb onto the Novgorodian throne. So that's just kind of a background about Mstislav. Uh, Mstislav entered Kiev and gathered the leaders of the revolt and had them executed while he blinded a few others and even killed some innocent nobles to send a message to the Kievans. Well, I was kind of hoping for a happier ending there, but okay. Yeah. On May 2nd, 1069, which is also the date of my birthday, not the year, of course, the Kievans welcomed Izyaslav back rather happily to Kiev, since he wasn't the one who killed the mob leaders, and placed him back on the throne. As Boleslav II returned back to Poland, Izyaslav then commanded his troops in Kiev to ensure that the Polish army would fall into a few accidents while they were out foraging for food. Oh, cool. Another uh, <clears throat> hunting accident. Foraging accident. This time it's a foraging accident, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at this point, like, a hunting accident is shorthand for, well, you know, hunting accident. Oh, yeah, it is. Well, <clears throat> if we continue on, I just want to say that this whole situation reminds me of Sviatopolk the Accursed, mm-hmm. because the two men were both princes of Turov before becoming the Grand Prince, and then they were ousted from Kiev. They both ran to Poland for safety, and they were both the in-law of a Polish king. You know, Sviatopolk the Accursed being married to the daughter of Boleslav I, and Izyaslav being married to the aunt of Boleslav II. They even both succeeded in retaking Kiev with the help of Polish troops. So there's a lot of parallels here in history. Indeed. You know, it's like it's like poetry. It rhymes. It really does. What this whole Sviatoslav situation did solidify, though, was that only the sons of those who had ruled Kiev could stand to inherit the throne. It did, however, showcase the issues of an unstable succession plan and would not ease any tensions that would happen in the future. Mm, they never learn. 
They never learn. They never will. At some point they do, but it, it'll be too late. But it's not going to be this time. It's not. Not for a while. It's all on, it's all on fire. <laughs> now, with his power back in Kiev, Izyaslav noticed that Novgorod was no longer in his control and was instead in the control of his nephew, Gleb Svetoslavich. But as Izyaslav's power was weak compared to Svetoslav, he instead confirmed Gleb's position as the Prince of Novgorod. This would not do, as the link between Novgorod and Kiev was clear for succession, and to deal with this, Izyaslav had to remove Sieslav Brekislavich from the Polotskim throne, where he placed Mstislav in the stead of his rebellious cousin. So now his son is the Prince of Polotsk. But this did not last long, because Mstislav soon died, and Izyaslav named his other son, Sviatopolk, as a new Prince of Polotsk. And this would not last long because Sviatoslav would return and usurp Sviatopolk and return to his old princedom, leaving Izyaslav with complete loss of territory. This guy does not have a good time. <laughs> nope. And diplomatically, things are going really bad for him too. Nikon, the elder monk of the Monastery of the Caves, which well, was founded by Izyaslav... Like the camera? <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> this uh, the, Nikon, the elder monk of the Monastery of the Caves, which was founded by Izyaslav, they had an argument, and Nikon departed from Kiev to Tumoturokan, where he founded a new monastery and acted as the intermediary for Sviatoslav. Uh, Nikon may be the former metropolitan Ilarian from Yaroslav's episode. Mm. Uh, he, he was ousted out by the patriarchy um, of Constantinople after Yaroslav died, hence why he's a monk now. Um, this was also compounded by the departure of another venerable monk named Antonius, who went to Sviatoslav as well after Izyaslav accused him of supporting Vsyaslav as Grand Prince during that short tenure. But in 1072, things had managed to come back to relatively calm for Izyaslav, and he had a new church built in Vyshkorod to honor his deceased uncles, Boris and Gleb. Together with the rest of the Yaroslavichi, they held festivities to promote their legitimacy as the main princes of Rus, and undertook the task of moving the relics of Boris and Gleb to their final resting place in Vyshkorod. They carried the wooden coffins with the holy relics with a rather devout process filled with chanting, singing, matins, and everything. And then they placed the relics into stone coffins and kissed both coffins. Afterwards, they had a massive feast and celebration, and they all died in utmost happiness. During this meeting, they even added a few more ordinances to the Ruskaya Pravda, or the Russian law code. So he's making laws, at least. Mm -hmm. um, this whole ordeal is more than anything a show of authority by Izyaslav who was already very weak after being usurped once by Sieslav, and he needed to use the message that Boris and Gleb sent to the people, that of self-sacrificial obedience to the elder brother. Hmm, yeah. I wonder who came up with that rule. I don't know. A few months passed, and Isyaslav was visited by his brothers, where he greeted them in the Grand Hall. However, their faces were somber, and they told Isyaslav that he had to vacate the throne of Kiev or die. Hmm, nice of him. The coup was bloodless, and Izyaslav gathered his belongings and quite a few of the Kievan treasures and fled back um, with every Kievan prince's favorite vacation spot, Poland. However, the Poles were not going to deal with Izyaslav's issues, since he did have their troops killed, and instead stole the treasures he had and kicked them out to the curb. Hmm. Sensing he needed other allies, Izyaslav went to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, which was in Mainz. Um, there he told his story about how his brothers had betrayed his trust, and now he needed his help to get his throne back. Henry IV was more than cautious because here was this random Rus man in his throne room begging for an army. So he sent a letter to Kiev asking what was happening to the current Grand Prince, Sviatoslav. Sviatoslav was an adept diplomat and managed to stop all of Izyaslav's attempts in the West, though. While this occurred, Izyaslav sent his son Yaropolk to Rome for more assistance, and he met with Pope Gregory VII to confirm the legitimacy of his grievances and, of course, to get back what was stolen from him by Boleslav II of Poland. Here, the chroniclers state that Izyaslav was willing to make Rus part of St. Peter's fief if he assisted him in this endeavor. Hmm. Wow, that is a, uh, that's a great historical what-if, I have to say. Oh, yeah, it is. What if Russia became Catholic after this? And this is not too long after the Great Schism, so that's, like, a very interesting time. Now, this meeting with the Pope may have been an issue, because this was only 20 years after the Great Schism, where the Pope and the Constantinopolitan Patriarch had excommunicated each other. Remember, the Kievan church is obedient to Constantinople, and the people were suspicious. Was Izyaslav suddenly a Latinophile? 
And why was one of Ezioslav's sons baptized as Peter? I don't know if Latinophile is the word you want to go for there. Italophile, maybe. You know, or papist. Let's go with papist. Yeah, was Ezioslav suddenly a papist? Yeah. You know. Latinophile might, that, that term might be confusing to some people. Uh, well, he, he may have been a papist. Like, they're wondering, is he suddenly a papist? And why was, why was one of his sons baptized as Peter? It's not like, you know, Peter's one of the apostles or anything. Mm-hmm. Honestly, this was just a suspicion and had no traction because it was normal for Western alliances to happen and there is no evidence against Isislav's orthodoxy. But these may have been thoughts that the Rus nobility were having at the time. Now, Isislav may have gotten assistance from the Pope somehow because we find him returning to Kiev at the head of a Polish army soon after the death of Sviatoslav. At this time, Sviatoslav was now the Grand Prince of Kiev and he had to respond to his elder brother's invasion. They met at the Volan River, but there is no battle noted, and they must have come to terms peacefully. Izyoslav resumed his position as the Grand Prince, and in return, Sievolod was given the title of Prince of Chernigov, which was second to Kiev. So he's back in power. Nice. Now, the passing of Chernigov to Sievolod was an affront to Alyek Svetoslavich, who was ensconced in Chernigov. His brother, Roman Svetoslavich, was Prince of Chernigov for eight days before running off to Tumaturokan. Alieg was expelled from Chertigov by Vladimir Sievolodovich Monomach, who we talked about earlier in the example for patronymic names, and went after his brother Roman in Tumaturokan, and there he met up with Boris Vyacheslavich, the son of Izyaslav's younger brother who died quite early into Izyaslav's reign. Now you see why the patronymic names are necessary? Yeah, I do. You already threw a Sviatoslav in there, and I was like, wait, which one? This is Alieg Sviatoslavich, the brother of Izyaslav. Right. Around the same time, Izyaslav sent a force to Novgorod, where he managed to capture the city and kill Gleb Svetoslavich, and place his son, Svetopok Izyaslavich, as the prince of Novgorod, once again restoring the tie between Kiev and Novgorod. Meanwhile, in Tumotorokan, Aliyek Svetoslavich and Boris Vyacheslavich were coming together and forming a plan. They wanted to take Chernigov, as it rightfully belonged to Aliyek, and to do so, they hired a band of Q-mens to assist them. They moved north and met with Sievolod's forces at the Solz River near Smolensk, and Sievolod was easily defeated, making him retreat back to Kiev for aid. The force of Cubans led by Alien Boris made their way towards Chernigov, and Izyaslav met with his brother and promised to give him the army he needed to quell his nephew's rebellion. He brought his forces together and they marched north towards Chernigov, but on arrival, the city was barricaded with no sign of Alien and Boris anywhere. Izyaslav demanded the gates be open and they be allowed into the city, but Chernigov refused. Angered, Izyaslav ordered the attack and sent Vladimir Monomach to attack from the east, while he and Sievolod held and distracted them at the main gate. Uh, Vladimir Monomach managed to take the gates on the side of the Silesian River and open up the gates to the outer city. Chernigov's outer regions were set ablaze, and when news that Alieg and Boris were on the way, the final two Yaroslavici sallied forth to meet their nephews at the Nizhen Meadows. Alyek Svetoslavich met with Boris Vyacheslavich and noted that he thought it wasn't time for them to attack, because they were outnumbered and nowhere close to a place to retreat. They couldn't fight with four different princes at once, and instead should be diplomatic and entreat their uncles. Boris was having none of it, motioning around to his army saying, Behold our present strength! I will rather fight them all! Alyek sighed and prepared the men for battle. The battle began and the man who was most eager died first. But Izyaslavich was slain at the beginning of the battle. Izyaslav and Sievolod were fighting alongside their army, and the sound of horses and from the Cumans were deafening. Attempting to defend themselves as best as they could, the fight continued on. Aliyek slipped out from the middle of the battle with great difficulty as he dodged spears, horses, and swords, and sought refuge far off in Tumaturokan. As the battle came to an end, a retreating Cuban soldier broke through Izyaslav's Drujina and impaled the Grand Prince into the ground before running off. With a sword or a spear? With a spear. Okay. I need these details. Come on, bro. Despite the rout of the Cuban army led by Elieg, Izyaslav's life force slipped away from his body, and he died on October 3rd, 1078, from his wounds on the battlefield. Sevalod took his brother's body downriver to Gorodietz, where Izyaslav was laid in state for a few days so that the Kievans could mourn for him. The people lamented, and he was buried in the Church of the Tithes on his palace grounds. The death of Izyaslav on the Nizhen Meadows marks the first time that a prince of Kiev had died on the battlefield since the death of Sviatoslav over 100 years earlier. 
This is the guy who got turned into a cop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. He is also the only Prince of Kiev to be killed in battle against his own kit. Hmm. Well, he's not. He's definitely not the only Kievan who uh, died in battle against his own kin. That happens a lot, it seems. Well, no, he's like he's only, he's the only Kievan prince to die in battle against his kin. Hmm. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, and that is his whole life. Are you ready to rate him? Yep, I am ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. 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 Spezalna operacja. Special operations. How well did they lead in battle or have other people lead in battle for them? So, what do you think? Um, okay, so this is just pure military. So, okay. So, in terms of military prowess, well, sorry, was this first battle before or after he got thrown out of Kiev by an angry mob? Before. Okay, and he won that one, presumably. So, yeah. So, his first battle was the one where he fought... He went on expedition against the Cumans, right, right. where he won mm-hmm. with his brothers. Then he fought against Sieslav, and he also won that one. And then the Cubans came back again, and he lost that battle. And then then he was ousted for uh, afterwards mm-hmm. because he didn't want to fight again. So I understand that Cumans are um, a Turkic people, and I, I believe the Pechenegs were also Turkic, right? Yes. Um, so did the Cumans also um, adopt the strategy of archery on horseback, generally? Yes. Okay. I was just curious about that. I, I could not tell you if that was more or less effective than whatever tactics that the Rus used. But anyway, okay, so we won that battle. Then he got thrown out of thrown out of the city by an angry mob. I think lo- losing to an unarmed... Ang- well, they had pitchforks and pitchforks and torches so it's not completely unarmed but mostly unarmed angry mob i think losing a battle to them is pretty pretty weak i have to say well he didn't really lose he just kind of they overran the palace and he had to flee Mm -hmm. that wasn't really a a set piece battle he just made to flee yeah but you have the army at your beck and call you couldn't you can't put down a little little rebellion he has an army that was just severely defeated by the cumans oh he was defeated by the cumans okay yeah Oh, sorry. You're right. Yeah, you said that. My bad. Okay, so he lost to the Cumans. Left. He needed the Poles to help him get his throne back. Yeah, after being ousted by the angry mob, mm-hmm. and he he had the Polish army, which he didn't need to take to battle because yeah. Sieslav disappeared into like the mist. Right. So Sieslav just ran. Um, yeah. Then he rode for a while, and then he think he got ousted again. Yeah, without it, without any battle, like yeah, it was just battle. a quiet, bloodless yeah, yeah. coup. His brothers were just like, coup, yeah, yeah, we're taking over, and he was mm-hmm. like, "Look at me, I am the Grand Prince now." And then he mustered an army and he came back and he took it again, but uh, didn't have to fight. Yeah, didn't have to fight. And then he went to, you know, then his nephews Alieg and Boris, mm-hmm. you know, rebelled, and then he took an army back up to them where he mm-hmm. won. Yeah. He won the battle, but One he point. died in it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, out of all the battles, major battles he fought... He won almost all of them, yeah. except for the, the one against the Cumans. Yeah. Won almost all of them. And then there's dying in battle, which, I mean, it's about leading in battle, not yourself being all that good at fighting. Well, and also, lead in battle, how often did he fight and how well did others lead for him? Right, right. Um. So, I mostly won. Um. I mean, I don't know. I guess like a six. Yeah, I'm thinking the same. Because like, the losing to the Cubans did lead to the angry mob that did get him ousted. Mm-hmm. Which is like, which is basically where his power basically started falling afterwards. Because he was never back up to like the same amount of power after that. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. So that is a total of 12 for Spensalina Operacia. Success. How successful were they in running their nation? What cultural significance did they leave behind? Uh, this one's a tough one. And not for us, but tough for him. Because... Uh, well, I, I will say he does have some cultural significance. Uh-huh. Because um, he did build the the Kiev Pichersk Monastery. Mm-hmm. Where he, he ordered it built, and it's still standing around today. Mm-hmm. So I sent you some pictures of what it looks... Uh, what it would have looked like back in the 1600s. What it looks like today. So he ha- he built something that's still standing around, and then he did build the cathedral at Vishkorod that held the relics of his uncles. Mm. Or, but those, that was destroyed later on in history. Well, um, so 
He did. He did have a few building projects. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'd say in terms of success, it's like a pendulum swinging, because he lost a major battle to the Cumans, and his own people were so incensed by this that they rose up and threw him out, and he just kind of let them. I think if your mm-hmm. own people throw you out, that's a sign that your political career is uh, really taking a turn for the worse. But he came back. He did come back. Twice. I will say, this is probably the most interesting and convoluted um, political career that we've covered so far, I think. Everyone else seems to like like rise to power and then die and pass it on. Or they rise to power and then they fall and they die. Nobody, nobody so far has risen to power, fallen, then risen, then fallen again. Well, Yaroslav rose to power, took Kiev, then had it taken from him. Then he took it back again, mm-hmm. and then he kept it. And he kept it. Isislav just mm-hmm. and Isislav just did it another time. He lost it again, then kept it until until he died. Right. So that's two separate occasions where he was forced out in a mostly bloodless coup. Well, one in one case, appointment by mod rule. We don't have reports of anybody dying in the angry mob. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I'm sure the mob probably killed somebody. I would have to guess. But was it Igor? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, the, the, the little guard Igor. You know, e- yeah, no, the kid, guard Igor. <laughs> yeah, no, they ran over this poor guy, who you know just tried also to named Igor. make a living, you know, sell his sell his wares on the street, but they destroyed his, they destroyed this poor guy's cabbage cart, and all he could say was, <laughs> "My cabbages, my kapusti." <laughs> Uh, anyway, so interesting, convoluted. Yes, is he very good at holding on to power? No, he he loses it as soon as he gets it. But he held on to it for quite a while. Yeah, he held first. on to it's it. Just... Um, and you know he you know he was able to like build alliances with the Pope. Um, he was able to build alliances with the Poles until he had them killed, and then they didn't want him anymore. That was probably like a major. Major thing. Also, they took all his treasure and then just kicked him out. They could have killed him, but they didn't. I don't know why. Because he was married to the uh, his the king's aunt. Oh, right, right, of course. But I did forget to mention that once Izislav returned back to Kiev after meeting the Pope, he apparently forgot about his promise to the Pope. <laughs> yeah, forgot. <laughs> forgot. Uh, what did he promise uh, again? Like we would be Catholic or something? Yep. <laughs> oh, but consider being Catholic. Considered. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah so what's the score you want to give him um okay i mean here's the thing i have to give him points for gaining power then i have to take them back again for losing it but but he got it back at the end that's what matters he he died as a grand prince okay so let's say i don't know out of i mean 10 obviously he's not going to be a 10 so let's like no take it like as a maximum of five okay every time he gains power he gets two points so he gained power three times and kept it at six points and then lost it twice. So he has two points. Okay. So okay, that's two points from you then? Yeah, two. I'm going to go ahead and give him a three. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like the fact that he was able to make those alliances help him, even when his brother Sviatoslav was mm-hmm. like at every step trying to make sure that his alliances didn't work. Yeah. He still managed to make an alliance and come back and take power. I mean... Svetoslav was dead at that point, but it was still, he managed to do it. Mm-hmm. And again, he lives life on the edge. This is the most, probably the most interesting one we've had in a while. Just because. Next to Olga? <laughs> yeah, besides Olga, just because he's like constantly on the like, seat of his pants, getting by in his alliances and his charm and what have you. Like, like, he did a pretty good job, surprisingly. Given his circumstances, he did a good job, but. Still, I'd like to point out, people hated him so much that they cooed him twice. True. So that is why I'm like, he's not, he's getting a low score. I was like, yes, he was successful. He got, he got to keep the throne, but he was cooed twice. And like, he may have been cooed again if he didn't die in battle. Yeah. Who knows how many times we go through this whole rigmarole again. A few, I think. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he's dead. Um, so that is a five for Uspiech. Compromat. Blackmail. What things did they do behind closed doors, or outwardly, that made others dislike them? 
Um, there's a pretty glaringly obvious one for that. That, in terms of making people not like him. Okay, losing a battle to the humans is not compromat. That's just you're just bad at war. But killing your own allies—that is pretty compromat. Oh yeah, that is. Yeah, he had he ordered them killed. Oh, and lying to the Pope, which out of like all the people you could have lied to, it's the 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 voice of God on Earth. You choose to lie to him. <laughs> How Russian this is, is the most compromat thing. Oh my God. <laughs> I love that. I was just like, oh yeah. And then he forgot about his promise to the Pope. <laughs> yeah. He forgot about a promise to the to the tongue, the mouth of God. Oh, and don't forget, he also made a promise to God to, mm-hmm. uh, to safeguard um, Siestava Polotsk into coming into his camp to make a peace deal and then arrested him. Yeah. Yeah. Which which the which the chroniclers hated. Yeah. Like Yeah. Having eight hundred concubines, eh. Um uh oath breaking? Okay, come on. Now we're really talking about Compromat in the minds of in the minds of the chroniclers. Oath breaking in the name of Christ is yeah, bad. In the name of Christ. Yeah. Like Vladimir was just a pagan, but this is in Christ's name. You kissed the cross. How dare you? Um so I think we do have to give him a lot of points for Compromat. Mostly for okay. throwing, you know, for getting, you know, his Polish allies killed or having them killed, rather. I think, uh, I think an eight, a good eight, is in order. Oh, an eight. Were you gonna give him less okay. or more? I was gonna give him a six. Oh, okay. Which I think, which I think is still a good balance. Um, that's of what fourteen mm. total. I don't know. I guess I find the thing with killing the Poles particularly distasteful. Also, they hated him for it, and they, you know, they kicked his ass to the curb. You know, you are right. I'll bring it up back to a seven. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I think that was distasteful because now he's she tried getting their help again and they were like, we're not helping you because we lost a lot of men for some reason despite not having a battle. And it wasn't dysentery. And, you know, he lied to the Pope. He lied to Sieslav, which was, mm-hmm. you know, he promised someone, you know, safe passage and then... Broken an oath in it. Christ's name. Yeah, he broke an oath in Christ's name, which... At the time, would have been very bad. Mm-hmm. So that is a fifteen for compromat. Alrighty. Bozer boy. Oh my god. Uh, how handsome were they? All right. So, folks, for the listeners at home, Roberto just DM'd me a little. Oh my god. What a goofy looking. Goofy. <laughs> he said, "Oh my god, that should be full points." <laughs> my god. No, 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 no. This. Look at this. Look at this dude's dumb hat. Look at this stupid hat. I know. This terrible mustache and goatee comp. Or, I don't know if it's... No, no, no. It's a mustache and soul patch combo. Um, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It was probably... This nipple hat. Fashionable at the time. But no, this is like... Nah. Absolutely you not. You know, we haven't had someone... With, we have not had someone with good drip in quite a while. I think... Svaltepok, I guess. Yeah, Svaltepok in this painting. He had drip. You know. Yeah, but... We're here for Izyaslav, Yaroslavich. Mm. So, um, what, it, what, what do you think about this man's only portrait? Mm-hmm. Okay. Wait, is this the only one? This is the only one. I'm tempted, like, I'm tempted to just go straight up zero. <laughs> you, can, you can do that. Yeah. All right, then, zero. I'm going to give him a one for even having a portrait. <laughs> yeah. One for having the audacity to destroy our eyes with that. <laughs> I mean, he has coins, but you don't like coins. I'm not sending you coins because anymore. they're useless. <laughs> yeah, true. It actually looks worse than this. You mm. can barely see the coins; it's so blurry, right. and, like so faded. So yeah, that's a one for Bojemoy. He is not a pretty man. Mm. Alrighty. I mean, most of them aren't. Pretty is not I the mean, word I you, would use. Have you seen *See the Folk of the Accursed*? Uh, I mean, that was a romanticized depiction by the artist. It's like, <laughs> true, true. it's like, you know, John Milton. Oh man, why am I making Satan so, so sexy? I don't know, John, you tell me. Because Satan is sexy. Exactly. Um, anyways, so that's a one for Bojemoy. Mm-hmm. And last category. Vladichistva. Longevity. How many years did they last on the throne? How long do you think they lasted, Brendan? Well... I mean, knowing them, I'm going to say the first time they got overthrown, they're like on the throne for two years, maybe. And I don't know why these numbers are coming to mind, but let's say he spent like six, no, a couple months in exile, 
Then he got it back. And I don't know. 10, 15 years. Then he got thrown out again. And let's say he was in exile for like 6 years after that. I don't know. How long? How long was it? Okay. So get ready for this because this is going to be a long one. Izislav reigned from February 20th, 1054 Mm -hmm. to September 15th, 1068. And then was deposed by Sviaslav. Mm-hmm. Uh, so about 14 years there. Um, then he got his throne back and reigned from May 2nd, my birthday, 1069 to March 1073. So about three years there. Hmm. So I basically got it backwards, totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where he was deposed by Sviatoslav and Sviatoslav. And then he got his throne back and reigned from July 15th, 1077 to October 3rd, 1078 for a bit over a year. For a combined total of 19.42 years on the throne, or a total of 7.73 points. Oof. Wah, wah, wah. I mean, he's he's lasted longer than almost most of the rulers so far, minus like Alieg, Igor, um, Vladimir, and Yaroslav. Mm, yeah, but whatever. Okay. Um, and this brings his total points to a whopping, and it's it's forty point seventy three, <laughs> which puts him in what place? Let me find out. This would put him in eighth place. Hmm. Oh wait, out, out of, of how 10. many? How many out of ten? Yeah, that, that that seems about right. I'd say again. I think he's one of the more like I'll, I'll keep saying this. One of the most interesting or like remarkable stories. But in terms of like what we've we've set up, like no, he he couldn't score high. No, now this is where he gets a chance to redeem himself. Does he deserve to party it out in the Kremlin with with his interesting story, as you like to say, or does he get shipped off to the Gulag? I mean, I do like him kind of, just because he provided some entertainment, and I I I do have a soft spot in my heart for. The kind of guy who just gets knocked down and he gets up again. Never going to keep you down. Chumbawamba. I do find that admirable about him. And I th- I feel like I owe him some manner of redemption. At the very least for persistence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do actually, I want to send him to the Kremlin. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. That's I'm I'm surprised actually. <laughs> I, I've, I've been unimpressed with other abject failures and I've sent them straight to the gulag. But I really, I do kind of deep down like this guy. You know, despite him not looking that great and being the lowest Kremlin score, you know, I'm going to send him to the Kremlin. Nice. Mostly mostly for the shits and giggles. But like, (laughs) um, he's not going to do well. But I I just want to, he's interesting enough where it's like, Mm. he didn't give up and he kept going. And it was just a lot of happenstance happened. The way I see it is, Sure, he lost a major battle to the humans, but so did his brothers. You know, Sievolod and Sietoslav also lost that battle because they all went together. Mm. But they weren't kicked out of the realms. It was because he's the Grand Prince and didn't, you know, didn't have the resources to, you know, arm his people that they rebelled against him. Now, one thing that I do appreciate about him is that he kept trying, even with Sietoslav kind of, you know, diplomatically stopping him at every corner when he was in Western Europe. He kept trying, and then he had a fun time lying to the Pope, mm-hmm. or he sent his son to do it. Right. It was just an interesting time to kind of like see that, and, he, and even then, like his brother, his remain, his final remaining brother, Sievolod, went to him for assistance in his last year of being the Grand Prince, which shows that he still has some sort of respect for him. Right. Oh, so yeah. Wow. Lives on the edge, died on the edge. Yeah, you are off to the Kremlin. I was not expecting to for us to send him to the Kremlin when I did his research <laughs> at all. So congratulations, Yzislav. You are in the Kremlin with your dad, your grandpa, your great-grandma, and your great-great-uncle. Wow. So that is what we have for this week. But before we continue on, we have some poetry to do. So this is a poem by Nikolai Gumilyov, and it is called 
the people of the present. He's most famously known as the husband of Anna Akhmatova, but if you want to get more in detail about him, I will go into it. He led the Acmeus poets in their objection to the mysticism of the symbolist and called for a return to clear language and concrete imagery. In the precision of his lines, we encounter classical models of the stanza. Umilyov's poetry greatly influenced the early Nikolai Tikhonov to this day and serves as a school of creative craftsmanship for young writers. Um, to some tastes, his verse seems overloaded with artificial romantic trappings. However, his best work will always remain treasures of Russian poetry, expressing a direct, virile, and heroic attitude toward life. And that is directly from the RueVerses.com website that talks about Nikolai Gumilyov. Because I am not going to research him as of yet. Because, as I said, his wife is the more famous of the pair. And in Russian, it is called Ludyam Nasayashevo. Glyachevo muy nieznachim. Nashik dum goryachi drozhu. Napolniayem vostuki plachiam. Snami smeshanimi slozhu. Detagol. Чтобы бесполезно, без божества, без печали, между временем и бездной, начертить свои спирали. Для того ли, чтобы в мраке, полным слов и изобилия, бросить тягостные знаки, утомления и бессилия. И когда сойдутся в храме, сорми радостных видений, быть тяжелыми камнями, Written between 1903 and before 19, October of 1905. To the people of the present by Nikolai Gomilyov. Why don't we make them distinguished? Our thoughts, with heart's vibration, fill the air with cry and skirmish. Dreams and lies in combination. Just for that, that, fully useless. Lost of joy and lost of sadness. To draw spirals of the losers between even time and spaces. Just for that. That in the darkness, full of dreams and gloomy richness, to leave signature of hardiness, bitter tiredness and weakness. And when the temple alone will be joined by happy nations to become the heavy stones for future generations. Translated by Evgeny Bonver. Alrighty, and it is time for recommendations. Brendan, what are you recommending today? Uh, today, I'm recommending kind of a weird one. I'm recommending a 15-part investigative series by the journalist and writer Cerise Castle called A Tradition of Violence, the History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. I have been reading it over the last few days and I'm not quite done yet, but it is, well, first off, it's an article and it's a podcast. Technically, it is a history podcast. It involves history that stretches from around the 80s to present day. And it basically is the story of number of brutal murders, beatings, and acts of harassment by members of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department in what are called deputy gangs, which is basically not exactly criminal enterprises, but they are do have hallmarks of the gang. Actually, every article starts with under section 186.22 of the California Penal Code, a criminal gang is described as any organization or a group of three or more people that, one, has a common name or identifying sign or symbol, has as one of its primary activities the commission of one of a long list of California criminal offenses, and three, whose members have engaged in a, quote, pattern of criminal gang activity, either alone or together. Sheriff gangs fit that description. Uh, it's basically an incredibly harrowing story of the gangs that formed and or infiltrated the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, such as, for example, the Linwood Vikings, who are nationally infamous for being a white supremacist gang within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which was known, for example, brutally beating inmates at a county jail. Um, if one of those inmates was a non-white person that got into a fight with a white person. And I just think it's an incredibly well-written piece of journalism. And I think it's an important thing everybody should know. That's awesome. And we'll put a link in the episode description. Or the episode show notes. I hope you really do enjoy Brennan's recommendation. And here is my recommendation. I am going to recommend listening to the Ukrainian band Ginger. Spelled J-I-N-J-E-R. Wait, they're Ukrainian? Yes, they're Ukrainian. I didn't know that. What? They're, they're Ukrainian. I've been along with the song Pisces from their live sessions video. 
and I've been basically blasting it while doing research on Isislav's and Yaroslav's episodes. So it's been a lot. It's been, I basically, it flows in and out really nicely, so you can't even tell it stops. It just kind of, once it starts over, you're like, oh, did it ever stop? Did it ever start? I don't know. It's great. The singer's name is Ta- Tatiana, right? The singer's name is Tatiana Shmailuk. Yeah, Tatiana Shmailuk. Yeah, so it is, um, according to Spotify, because I'm going to do what you did last time, they are a versatile progressive groove metal unit based out of Ukraine. Ginger have found success both in their Eastern European homeland and abroad with a punitive blend of post-hardcore and death-progressive new metal. So yeah, so they're from mm. originally from Donetsk in Ukraine, and none of the original lineup survives the band. So this is all like, no founding members of the band are still in it. That's weird. Which is which I find really interesting actually, because now because you have this like great band that like mm-hmm. you know basically the new band after everyone left the new people just kind of ran with it and just made it great. Um, so I really recommend Ginger and the lead singer Tatiana Shmailuk. Honestly, when she goes into her scream, you can't even tell it's her. You think it's two people, but no, it is just all her. And I absolutely love it, and will probably be listening to it on my drive. Somewhere. I'm not saying where, uh, but on my drive. Um, but it is a, a lot of fun, and we really hope you enjoy Ginger. And of course, a Ukrainian. So support a nice Ukrainian band who just got permission from the culture ministry to go abroad and do concerts for cultural purposes and to kind of help promote Ukraine. Yes, so, nice. Um, I can also second this. Um, let's, how do you say your last name? Tatiana Uk. Shmailiuk. Maliuk. Yeah, Tatiana Maliuk. Um, Shmiley, Shmiley, yeah, Shmiley. Uh, yeah, I have also listened to Ginger. Um, I can confirm that they're incredibly talented musicians, particularly the bassist and the drummer. I uh, was really impressed by, and of course, Tatiana not only has an incredibly beautiful, um, clean singing voice, but she is able to do something incredibly difficult, which is have a very terrifying, extreme scream. Um, sort of a death metal type scream so it's very from the abdomen um not not very high pitched like you 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 really cannot tell it's i've never really heard a woman um (laughs) make like such a deep guttural scream in uh in metal um it it is pretty awesome yeah and uh it's incredibly difficult to have such a beautiful clean singing voice and it's also incredibly difficult to have such a uh controlled controlled death growl if she ever if they ever come to like where we're at we need to go brandon yeah yeah, no. It's, like I absolutely will go. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's difficult for people who don't know anything about metal to understand how impressive it is that she can do that. But trust me, it is incredibly impressive. It hurts if you don't know how to do it right. Middle school and high school me will let you know that. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, Brendan, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, so long as it happens, if I ever end up going to Mastodon, which is possible, um, it'll be all under the same handle which is foster underscore writing. And uh, if I'm doing anything on there, if I'm writing articles or anything like that, you will find it on there. And if you're a journalist, interview Brendan and hire him. Yeah. If you're a newspaper, please hire me. And to get more direct contact with us, feel free to access our website at czarpowerpod.weebly.com. There you can find the show notes, pictures, bibliography, and vote on whether you think Easyslav deserve the Kremlin or the Gulag. It also has links to our social media, which is just at ZarPowerPod. Zar spelled T-S-A-R. If you would like to support the show to help us expand and grow, feel free to subscribe to our Patreon as we get access to bonus episodes for both ZarPower and the history of Sarkovello, Georgia. We also have an Amazon book wish list, PayPal, and a coffee. If you'd like to do something that's free, please leave a review on your favorite podcast host, be it Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, Podcast Attic, anything that you use. Um, it really helps us support and grow the show, and we really do like reading your feedback. At least be nice to us when you write feedback. Don't yeah, please don't be tell mean. Us offered. <laughs> You're gonna make me cry. He's really crying, guys. Like don't, <laughs> don't be mean. Like 
<laughs> Constructive feedback is always nice. Just being rude about it is not. I mean, it's not like we can like complain to Apple or anything if you are mean, but whatever. We'll, we'll make fun of it in, in the, yeah. the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roberto will screenshot it and send it to me, and we'll both uh, react with Aplom or whatever. Yep, and then you'll be sent to the gulag with our friendly KGB agent. You you will hear that knock on the door. And that's a dosvian tavarishi from me. And from me, remember, diet parasitov. Goodbye. Bye. Dr. Fauci, give us vaccines. Help other people who have been quarantined. Ba-do-do-do.